glad you've chosen to join us today. I can't tell you how glad I am. We have such important things to talk about, and I'm really glad you've chosen to be a part of it. Here on Faith Is, we're going to talk about one of the most significant issues that challenges people's faith and sometimes discourages people, but I am convinced that God wants to make us whole and deliver us from the problem that we often think cannot go away. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is, where we understand faith to be absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And one of the consequences of that idea is that we believe that God is here to help us. We believe that God is here to make us whole. In fact, I think that's the message of the Bible. All the way from the beginning after sin entered the world that God wanted to bring about wholeness for his people. He wants to make us right. He wants to forgive us. He wants to to heal the hurts in our lives. He wants to make us whole. And today we want to talk about very important aspect of that. It's a little difficult to talk about. I'm a little concerned that that I won't be clear enough to be helpful. I, I'm really working hard to make sure I am. But I really want you to listen carefully and take this to heart because we are infected by this problem more sometimes, I think, than we ever begin to realize. And sadly, our young men and women are affected by it far more than most of us who have not had that problem in our lives ever. We don't even begin to realize what it does to them. So what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about a subject that maybe I can begin this way by asking you a question. And since I'm a pastor, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor of of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. So I come at this from a different perspective maybe than other people do because of of the pastoral perspective. But let me ask you a question, I guess, that that might surface this a little bit and and help us kind of get it out there from the get-go and then unpack it so that we can make some sense of it. And I think God wants to help a whole lot of people today resolve a whole lot of stuff in their lives so that they can be whole and they can be made new in ways they didn't know were possible. So if you're willing to cooperate with grace, here we go. Here's the question. Now this is gonna, this is gonna, uh, how should I say, get your attention, some people it will, but I'm gonna ask it this way for just to get it out there so we can talk about it. Don't be afraid, I'm not afraid. I don't think you're afraid. We know God doesn't want us to be afraid. He wants us to come to him for help. And that's what we're doing. So here's the question. Is anxiety a sin? Now think about that before you answer. Don't answer too quickly. Maybe I should ask it this way. Is being anxious a sin? Now, we talk about the idea that we're not supposed to be afraid because the Bible says over and over that we should not be afraid. God says to us, fear not. He wants us to trust him. It's the most frequent command in all of the Bible. So so when I ask the question, is anxiety a sin or is being anxious a sin, some people are going to be real quick to say, yikes, I guess it is because God said don't be afraid. 
or some other people are going to be quick to say, well, anxiety is different than fear, so I'm okay here. Well, okay, you can split all those hairs you want. That's not the important thing. The important thing is, can we come to grips with what God wants to do for us in delivering us from this anxious age we live in? So, is anxiety a sin or is being anxious a sin? So, I want you to think about that. I don't want to answer it 100% for you. I want you to, to wrestle with it. After all, we're thinking out loud here on America Out Loud, so you'll allow me to think out loud with you, I hope, and you'll think along with me, and really I want us to think God's thoughts today. But if, the, if we're going to answer the question, is anxiety a sin, then we need to ask, does it fit the definition of what a, well, what a sin is? So John Wesley gave the best definition I've ever heard of sin when he said, sin is a willful transgression of the known law of God. So it's something we do on purpose, we break God's law on purpose, and we know it. So is anxiety a sin? Well, people are going to say, well, well, I can be anxious and I don't even know where it came from. Yeah, I think that's true. In that case, is it a sin? Well, if it just kind of arrived and, and you didn't purposefully set out to be anxious, then I don't guess you willfully violated God's law in being anxious, did you? And the flip side of that coin, and this is why I don't really want to answer this question, especially at this point, is that, well, some of us, we live in anxiety on purpose, and we've built a house there, and we kind of like the neighborhood. And, and I don't mean to be unnecessarily difficult here, or I don't want you to hear me being harsh. That's not my point. My point is that some people have gotten so used to the adrenaline rush of anxiety, I guess it's an adrenaline rush, maybe it's something else, but it sure, it sure fires people up sometimes. They get so used to that, that they have to find a way to be anxious, or it just doesn't feel right to them. Well, I want us to look at one verse, we'll look at some other verses as we go along, but usually I read a rather extended portion of scripture, and I'm not meaning to ignore that, but but this one verse, as I was starting my preparation this week, both for our time together here and for my presentation to, to my church on Sunday, the, the very first verse of the scripture passage, which is longer than what we're going to read, got my attention, so I stopped right there. It was as though God said, this is what we need to talk about this week. And so he and I have been working on that, and now you and I get to talk about that. The verse comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and it's the very first verse. For many of us, it's familiar. Now, it may not be word-for-word word familiar to you in the English translation I'm using today, but I'm pretty sure many people will recognize this. So here's what the Gospel writer says, and, and these are the words of Jesus, by the way, not, not the Gospel writer's words. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus says, and he was addressing this to his disciples, it's a plural understanding. We have every confidence. It's for us. We need it as much as they did, maybe more. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, that's a rather familiar verse, rather familiar idea. Do not let your hearts be troubled. 
believe in God, believe also in me. So I want us to think about that a little bit and, and think about what, what it tells us just right right up front, right from the beginning of examining what, what Jesus is talking about here. So he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Okay, so, and, and some English translations, by the way, some of you might be more familiar with this, says, let not your heart be troubled. Same idea. Don't get hung up on a particular choice of words or word order. Now, that's not nearly as significant as some people make it out to be. What we want to understand is what is Jesus' message to us? If we can get that, that's what we want. And clearly he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. So when he says do not, then it clearly communicates to us that there's something to avoid that we should stay away from. Do not. Stay away from something. Something to avoid. Now, that something to avoid is a, as this English translation puts it, is a troubled heart. Do not let your hearts be troubled. So, there is something to avoid. Do not let your, and there's the thing to be avoided, your hearts be troubled. We want to avoid a troubled heart. Hmm. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's pretty easy to understand the do not in terms of avoiding, but what's the troubled heart? Well, what, what it actually means is that we are to avoid emotional upset anxiety or even fear. What Jesus is saying to us here is that we are to avoid living in that space. We are not supposed to live in emotional upset, anxiety, fear, whatever you want to call it. And we'll talk a little, little bit about understanding what exactly the emotion he's describing here is. But that's enough for at this point. I think we all have a sense of a troubled heart is certainly unsettled certainly not calm, certainly not at ease, certainly not experiencing the peace of Christ. So clearly Jesus says, avoid a troubled heart. Now, notice that it says, do not let your heart be troubled, or let not your heart be troubled, however you think of it. And and this whole idea, when he says, do not let your heart be troubled, that let idea says to us, and we need to hear this, it says to us that we have some control of this situation. Now, a lot of people think, well, I just get anxious. I can't control that. Uh, we'll talk some more about that as we go along, and, and don't, don't quit on yourself yet. Uh, don't quit on yourself ever, because God hasn't quit on you, but that's a little different sermon. It means when, it's, when Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled, it means that we have some control over the situation. We don't have control over everything that goes on. We cannot control the actions of the people around us. We can try to influence them. We can't control. We can't require them to do a certain thing. They can act in the most outrageous way they want to. Now, they might face unpleasant consequences, but they can still do it. There's other things we have no control over, and we need to understand that. Last I could tell, we can't control the weather, okay? So, but Jesus is saying here that this is within our ability to control this idea of a troubled heart. Do not let your heart be troubled. Now, I, probably I should mention it here, probably I should mention it more times than once, but this idea of a troubled heart is not referring to an incident 
as much as is a state of being. So don't let yourself be anxious in, in that sense. And, and just because there are different words for the same idea doesn't mean we're talking about a multitude of different emotional responses. It means we're talking about the same idea using different words to help us get it. Okay? So Jesus says, and let me read that one more time. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So instead of letting your heart be troubled, you figured that out already. Instead of letting your heart be troubled, Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, there's a little uncertainty, the people that study the details of the language, as, as to whether Jesus is saying, well, you believe in God, so now you believe in God, also believe in me. So it could be that. We don't know exactly. We certainly know Jesus is trying to give us a word of consolation, of hope, of solution to the problem of an anxious heart or a troubled heart when he says, instead of all of this, believe in me. Trust me. Trust God. How many times have you heard people say, well, you just got to have faith. Well, that's true. And Jesus is saying, you need to have confidence in me. And what do we say here? That's absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. We've got to have confidence in God. And Jesus is saying, confidence in God is the way to go. And confidence in God is one of the things to keep in mind to avoid having a troubled heart. Believe me. Believe what I tell you. Believe I've got things taken care of. Trust me. You don't have to live in that anxious, troubled state. You can be at peace with me. In fact, what did Jesus say at one point? He said to his disciples that he was leaving them peace. Well, peace isn't troubled heart, right? Right. Okay. I'm sure you get that. Now, let's let's um, rewind just a little bit so that we understand what's going on in this story, even in these few words. Now, there's a lot more words of Jesus here. He's saying his final words to his disciples, as John explains it, because just before this has been Jesus' time with the disciples in the upper room. And Jesus is described in the upper room as being troubled. It's, it's a challenge to know exactly what is meant by that, what Jesus was feeling. If you look into this more carefully, you will discover that the people that work on this idea of emotions tell us that it's hard to translate emotions exactly from one cultural setting to another. So when we're talking about ancient times to now, it, it, it doesn't mean that we know exactly what they were feeling based upon what we understand and how we might feel or our, our concept of emotions. But clearly, we get the picture that Jesus was, was anticipating some challenges and, and he was not at ease during that time. It's also during the time that Jesus washed his disciples' feet to uh, teach him some important lessons. He talked to them about being betrayed. And um, it, just before the verse that I read, it's, he talks about Peter's denial. So there's a whole lot of sense that, that there's some uh, troubled stuff going on here, some things that would make someone anxious, perhaps. Although I don't think that chapter uses the word anxious. I, I don't remember right offhand, but I don't think the, the chapter, chapter 13 uses that. 
But again, it's not about the exact word. We can trace the exact words in the ancient language, but really what those words are trying to communicate to us is a sense of a reality of a truth. And so when Jesus is described as being troubled in that upper room or anxious or whatever word you want to put around it, we also need to remember that there are other examples, and this is not an exhaustive list, there are just a few that I want to suggest, where Jesus himself seemed to be experiencing some anxiety or some level of a troubled heart. Well, you remember when Jesus was asleep on the boat, they were out and the storm blew up and it was a mighty storm and all the guys, they were frightened. They thought they were going to die. The storm was just that bad. And they woke Jesus up and and Jesus calms the storm and and deals with all of that. Well, there was a certain kind of anxiety going on there. I'm not so sure Jesus was anxious, but so, certainly those guys were. And he responds to that by calming the weather down and and, and kind of chastising them for What's wrong? Didn't they believe in him? Well, you can read that story. You remember that. It's also very interesting, and we talked about Lazarus' death a few weeks ago, that when Jesus came back to Bethany to visit Mary and Martha after Lazarus had died, it describes him as being upset. It is, he was upset that what was going on, now, we don't know if he was upset because of the hardship it made for those people. We don't know if he was upset because of the fact that he never intended for people to die, and so he was upset that death brought such pain and heartache. That's a little uncertain in there, but it may have been all of those things. But clearly, Jesus was not happy. He, he had a little bit of reaction to the death of Lazarus. And then, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, another easy a place to identify that Jesus was upset when he cried out to God that he didn't really want to have to go through the horrors of crucifixion and death. And his prayer was that God would take that away from him so he didn't have to face that. And of course, he was faithful to God and he faced it and conquered it. So one of the things I want us to take away from thinking about Jesus in that setting is that we know Jesus experienced life as we experience it. And Jesus did not seem to exempt himself or he was not immune from the unhappiness, the unsettledness, the anxiety, the the troubled heart things of his day. So that helps us kind of keep in perspective when we ask ourselves, is anxiety a sin? Well, if Jesus experienced some of the same things we do, then then we have to have to step back from that that cliff of saying anxiety is a sin. At the same time, if we park our car on Anxiety Avenue and we just love living there, we need to ask ourselves whether we're really hearing God's message to us. So I, I want us to really understand that what we're talking about is is not something that's easily identifiable across ancient times to ours. We believe, because we can read the story and it makes obvious sense to us, that Jesus and others in biblical times experienced what he described in John chapter 14, verse 1, as a troubled heart. There was unsettledness going on, but we don't know exactly what that meant. We do know better what it is for us in our lives, and we can deal with that. 
Now, one of the one of the ways I want to make sure you understand what I'm talking about here is I was trying to think of a of a comparison, and I don't know if this is a really a good one, but it helped me as I was thinking about it. When when you see videotape of a great crowd in the Middle East, you know they're out cheering or demonstrating or being upset about something. It could be a number of things. You get a sense of the emotion that's going on in that crowd. And and usually, because we're told what's going on, we get the sense that they're upset about something and uh, not happy about something. Well, they're very demonstrative. There's no question about that. And we're, we're not really well-equipped because we're separated from that culture by quite a bit to know exactly what's going on. So could we compare what goes on in those situations maybe to the way football fans react in this country? You know, if you go to a football stadium and you watch the fans react to the, the game and what goes on there, you can see all kinds of emotions. And if you didn't know the setting, you might not know the exact emotion. Well, all of that is to help us have a, how should I say, charitable look at what the Bible is describing when it's trying to help us understand these emotions. It's not that God wants us to have trouble with them. It's just the reality is it's not that easy to know exactly what one emotion is from one culture to another. So Jesus clearly experienced the very thing that he admonishes us to avoid, this idea of having a troubled heart. And another scripture you may have heard referred to from time to time is, uh, people quote it, it says, be anxious for nothing. Well, okay, I get that. So we're talking about a general sense of upset, of anxiety, of a troubled heart. We are not talking about what is often referred to these days as some kind of anxiety disorder. That does not seem to be at all what Jesus is referring to or what Jesus experienced in the New Testament. So I don't want us to confuse this kind of medical diagnosis thing with what we're talking about today. I do understand that some people have had terribly traumatic experiences in their life, and so they might respond in a way that it appears to be anxious for reasons that go far beyond our everyday life experience. And I don't want to pretend that that's what Jesus experiences, and I don't want to diminish the challenges people face. When when people do terrible things to people, it has consequences and impact. And sometimes the victims of those incidents carry that in ways that the rest of us don't quite understand. And I don't want to diminish their life experience, but I also don't want to, to... at all make any of us think that God didn't come to make even the most challenging problems right. Jesus came to bring wholeness even in the face of the most difficult experiences. And so whatever your level of troubled heart is, I I want you to take heart. Can we say, say it that way? Take heart about your troubled heart because the message of the Bible clearly is that God wants to make us whole. That's the whole point of dealing with sin. And yes, there is a sin relationship to this idea of having a troubled heart. So, let's think a little bit more about this idea, is having a troubled heart 
sin? Or is anxiety a sin? Well, I don't think that's a helpful way to think about it. Okay, I explained a little bit about the the choice earlier on and the willful transgression of the known law of God. I think what else we need to keep in mind here is that it's just not helpful to put it into that kind of a category because most of the time when people experience anxiety, it's not because they chose to. Okay, I think that's helpful. The Bible, the Bible, I don't know of any place that it calls anxiety sin. Now, some people today do. You'll hear people say, oh, anxiety is a sin. You need to get over that. Well, you do need to get over it. Uh, I want to make that clear. But I don't think that the nature of the way our emotions work make what most people experience today a sin. It's better to see what Jesus is talking about here and what the Bible talks about is that these are words of consolation. When Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled, yes, it's a clear statement that you have a role to play in that and you should not let anxiety rule the day. Okay, but what he's really saying is, is there's no need to dwell on upsetting stuff. Don't let your mind rehearse that stuff all the time. Instead, trust God. Hear God's words to you. Understand God's faithfulness to you. Understand that God comes to make you whole. The whole point of the sacrifice of Jesus was to break the power of sin and its effects, including anxiety, on us. And we need to hear Jesus' words as words of hope and consolation that we can trust God. We don't have to worry about all the other stuff. And there I go using that word worry. And yes, we need to use that word because some people want to say, well, I worry, but I'm not anxious. And that's part of what I've been trying to say all along is we can't split hairs over a specific word. We're talking about concepts here that God wants to help us with. And he wants us to realize that that his his words to us that we should not let our hearts be troubled troubled are are meant to help us realize that that we can manage these emotional things that come our way and by the mercies of God we can grow through even the hardest things that have happened to us to a point where we are no longer affected by that because God has given us wholeness and peace of heart and mind. He's made us He's made us the way He intended us to be. See, I'm convinced we weren't created to sin. We were never created to carry that burden. And we were not created to endure the effects of sin. We were created to have changed lives by the grace of God and the peace that He gives as a result of that change in us. And so when he says these words of consolation, he's really telling us, do not let your hearts be troubled, as a way to say, you don't have to live on Anxiety Avenue. You don't have to let yourself be that way. You see, when he says do not let, that's the control that we have over our hearts. And we need to take that to heart and take it as encouragement and hope and possibility from God himself. He wants us to be free of the emotional drivenness that some people have. He, he, he wants us to, to 
to rise above that because we grow in grace to the point that those things that once caused us so much distress no longer do. And that makes all the difference. Well, we've come a long way in a short time here, and I hope what you hear more than anything else is that what we're focusing on here is the idea that we can have hope for the troubled times and the troubled hearts that we sometimes experience. That there is peace with God, and we can experience that. I want you to hear me say that I've learned that over time. It hasn't always been easy, but I have learned because God is faithful, and we'll talk about God's faithfulness and what that means to us in a little bit more. But I know from experience that things that used to give me a troubled heart no longer do. And I've learned because God has helped me. Is This is not something I could do on my own. Uh, if you knew me as well as I know me inside, and I don't think I know me as well enough as God knows me, but God has really helped me learn how to manage some of these things and not let myself get all tied up in knots. You know, and there's another expression. Some people say, well, I'm not anxious and I'm not worried, but I'm tied up in knots all the time. Well, God wants to untie those knots and make your life calm and to give you a better perspective so that you can experience his wholeness so that he can settle you down and you can be relaxed and confident because you trust in God and you don't let all these things, these crazy things that go on, upset you. And we're going to talk about how to manage some of those things, too, as we go along. Well, we got a lot more to talk about, including in, in just a couple of minutes, we're going to circle back to the number one hymn of our church, of our church, of the, we chose the hymns that every Christian should know, and today we unveil the number one. It's not going to be a surprise to anyone, but I hope you'll stay with us. We'll circle back to that, and then we'll finish up on this idea of do not let your hearts be troubled. I'm Pastor Rick. Stay with us. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Did you know that doctors and nurses have been swabbing their noses with povidone iodine to protect from airborne threats like colds, flus, and pandemic era strains for decades? Cofix RX took that idea and made a more complete nasal formula with lasting cleansing effects. Maybe you're traveling soon or going to an event. Are you concerned somebody nearby might be sick? Maybe the office or classroom stresses you out. Get yourself a bottle of Cofix RX nasal solution. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix RX nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code out loud at cofixrx.com. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. The Wellness Company's chief medical board designed every supplement and medical protocol with your health in mind. From groundbreaking supplements like the Spike Support Formula to unique care like Freedom from Big Pharma. Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be with a company that shares your values. 
Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. AmericaOutloud.com Seven amazing years. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we think out loud on America Out Loud about faith and all of its issues, and where we understand faith to be absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we've been talking about how important it is in these anxious and troubled days to have that kind of confidence and belief in God, and we're going to pick that conversation up a little bit more in just a minute, but I have been counting down for the last umpteen weeks now, the hymn list, the Diplomat Wesleyan Church hymns every Christian should know, and we did it in a countdown form. We chose 10 with five honorable mentions, and we started some weeks ago with number 10, and we've been counting down. Now, these hymns that we chose are not chosen because they are our favorites. I'm sure that Many people in our church would say some one or two or more of these hymns are their favorite, but we didn't choose them because they are our favorites. We chose them because we thought these are the hymns every Christian should know. And so today we unveil the number one hymn every Christian should know according to the people at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, where I'm the pastor and I'm Rick Stevens. So let's get to it, shall we? If I had a drum roll, I'd play it, but we don't need one. Number 10 on our list was Jesus Loves Me. Number nine, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. Number eight, Holy, Holy, Holy. Number seven, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And we do, and that's part of what we're talking about today, isn't it? Uh, Number six, A mighty fortress is our God. You can believe in a God that is a mighty fortress, can't you? Absolutely. Number five, because he lives. You remember that song, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And you see, that gives us confidence and hope too, right? So we don't need to be anxious or worried or troubled or any of those kind of things. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow with confidence and hope. And there I go, getting off the subject again. Number four, the old rugged cross. Number three, Great is thy faithfulness, where we celebrate that God is continually faithful, and we are grateful for that. Number two on our list, How Great Thou Art, that great hymn that that really has become popular in yours and my lifetime, popularized by George Beverly Shea, singing it for the Billy Graham Crusades many years ago, starting back in the mid-50s. 
And now we come to the number one hymn every Christian should know, at least according to the folks here at Diplomat Wesleyan Church. And you've probably guessed it all along. Some of you have been saying, yes, I know what it is. And yes, you are correct. The number one hymn that we selected that every Christian should know is Amazing Grace. I don't think that's much of a surprise to anybody. I was pretty sure going in to this whole process that we started back way at the beginning of the year, I was pretty sure that either How Great Thou Art or Amazing Grace would come out as number one. I was pretty sure, it, I didn't know the order, but I was pretty sure they would be one, two somehow. And sure enough, Amazing Grace is the number one hymn that our church believes every Christian should know. And I don't think that's a surprise because often Amazing Grace is referred to as America's hymn because it is used in so many ways and on so many occasions. It has become much beloved and a great source of encouragement and hope. And I want to read the usual stanzas. Now, there are, there's more than these four that we usually sing, but since we sing these four usually, that's the ones I want to remind us of today. There are, there are plenty of others, and it's often the case with hymns that there are multiple stanzas, and over use time, over, over the usage and time, I guess I should say it that way, people have come to choose certain stanzas to sing and certain ones to not sing. I, I don't know that there's any particular rhyme nor reason to it. It's just the way it kind of has worked out. So, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. When we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Amazing grace. What a what a great hymn that has become. And and if you know anything about the, the story of its writing, you understand just how amazing this grace is, because it was written by a man in England named John Newton, you may know his story a little bit, he, um, he from an early age had a sensitivity to, to trying to understand what the gospel meant and to, and to making, I guess you could say, the gospel his own. He, he, he would strive and strive to try to be what God wanted him to do, always feeling like he didn't quite measure up, and, and he struggled because of that. And, and that, that caused him no, no small difficulty. Well, he uh, had a lot of interesting experiences in his life, in, including um, the death of his mother at an early age. It's a really difficult thing for him, including a father who was very demanding. He was a captain of a ship and a very, very rigorous with uh, John Newton. He did finally become a sailor in a number of different settings and ultimately a ship captain. He captained and was involved in the slave trade, and that really marked his life in so many ways. Not only was he involved in it, but in his younger years, 
he was actually enslaved, or they said at the time he was lower than a slave. He was the servant of slaves, and he was treated very brutally in a number of situations for a number of reasons, some of them of his own nonsense, but it was still a brutal life for many years. And then he got to be a captain and engaged in the slave trade. At one point, he, he uh, married his sweetheart that he met years before, and through all of that, he continued to pursue his understanding of God and what it meant to be a Christian. And he had a lot of challenges with that, but he came to grips with it and ultimately became not only a faithful Christian, but he became a pastor. And he became a hymn writer. He was a great encouragement to people. And he wrote this hymn, Amazing Grace, as a testimony of the grace of God in his life. And, and he... He clearly understood because he had been so so caught up in some of these evils that he clearly understood how God had reached to him by grace. And he wrote that hymn. And, and you can, when you know his story, and maybe you'd want to read a, a biography about him, when you know his story a little bit, you can, you can see that in the words to Amazing Grace in a way you wouldn't quite get any other way. But Amazing Grace... Our number one hymn that every Christian should know. And I think it's appropriately earned the, the title of America's Hymn. And it's one that we need to, to remind ourselves all the time. Grace that saved a wretch like me. And John Newton would have called himself a wretch. There's no doubt about it. And we all fall far short of the glory of God. And that's why God came to give Jesus so that we could be delivered from the evils of this life. And be prepared to live forever with the Father in heaven. That's, that's grace. Well, let's pick up our conversation about this whole idea from John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And I want us to talk about it a little bit more because I think that if we understand ourselves and what goes on in some of these emotional things, and these battles that we have, we can, we can develop strategies to help ourselves, to cooperate with grace, shall we say. And I think that's a great way to think of it, is that God invites us to cooperate with him so that our hearts can be made new and we can be made whole. No matter where we started, there's nothing too difficult for him. He can make us new. So we're talking about this idea of troubled hearts and it usually refers to some kind of emotional response. Anxiety, worry, upset, you call it by a lot of things. People try to call it by different names so that they don't have to face up to what it is. Uh, sometimes I've heard people referred to as, well, that person would worry if they didn't have anything to worry about. Well, that gets my attention and causes me as a pastor to say, there's a person who needs to find the peace of Christ. So let's talk about some of the some of the concrete things that we know about emotions and that that can help us understand. The first thing is in that verse it says do not let your hearts be troubled. Now when we think of or hear the word heart in our use of language and our understanding of the meaning of the word we generally tend to think about emotions more than anything else. I know we refer to heart as the the pump that beats inside all of us. I get that. But when we're talking about it in this context, do not let your hearts be troubled, we, we tend to think about emotional responses, anxiety, some kind of upset. 
Well, it's helpful for us to realize that, yes, this word is appropriately translated from the ancient language, and yes, we can understand it the way Jesus used it and meant for us to understand it. In Jesus' day, when they used the word that we translate heart, they were not referring to emotions alone. They were referring to the whole person, our whole being, and often I will describe it as it's our will, mind, and emotions, the whole package, shall we say. So we need to consider will, mind, and emotions when Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. It has to do with all three of those things. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, will, we mean that's the part of us that chooses. We have the responsibility and the ability to choose. And so when we talk about heart in the New Testament, it's referring to our will, mind, and emotions, the will being the part of us that chooses. So we have part of this idea of heart involves choosing and making right choices, choosing between right and wrong. It also refers to mind, and that's the part of us that's thinking. You think about things, you process things, you hear an idea, you hear about an incident, you know this happened, you know this might happen because something happened before that. All of these things we process in our minds because we think about things. And so part of what we think about is Well, should I choose right or wrong? Part of what we think about is coming to an understanding of that which is right and that which is wrong. We think about all those kind of things. Part of our thinking is, well, what's the wise thing to do? Occasionally, we think we want to be wise, and I'm not talking about being a wise guy or wise gal. I'm talking about making good, wise choices. Thinking involves our experiences, all that kind of stuff. So so will is choosing and mind is thinking. And the thinking means thinking about everything, response to our choices and also response to our emotions, which is the third aspect of heart. In the New Testament, when it refers to heart, that's the third part of that, will, mind, and emotions, the totality of our being. So when Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled, he's saying, don't let your total being be troubled. Believe in me. Don't let yourself be troubled. So will mind and emotions. And that's important to help us understand this idea of emotions. So sometimes we use the phrase, and I, and I use it, I don't have a reluctance to, of managing our emotions. Well, what I mean by that is not in the sense that we can turn them on or off. I've never had any sense that our emotions could be turned on or off. People sometimes squelch their emotions or refuse to to acknowledge an emotion. That often happens in the case of of a wound of some kind that that requires forgiveness. They want to pretend it didn't happen so they don't have to deal with it because it's too painful and people can't even contemplate forgiving someone. So I'm not talking about turning them off or stuffing them. I'm talking about how do we how do we understand that we're emotional beings and emotions will come and we do have to to deal with them and how do we deal with them how do we come to a better place when it comes to those emotions because the emotions just flare up they they just do but they don't have to flare up in a way that becomes harmful to us or makes us troubled as people we need to have developed both a mature perspective, a confidence in God, 
and then the ability to say to our emotions, hold on, you're overreacting here. That's what I mean by managing them. It's not that we can ever make them completely go away. I, I don't I don't see that happening. But I don't think we need to be driven by them or haunted by anxiety or worry or troubled hearts. I'm convinced that God wants to bring us wholeness. So what are emotions? Have you ever really thought about what are emotions? I came across some brilliant stuff that um, Becky, Becky Castle Miller was talking about. She's been studying emotions for a long time. And she, she was talking about and citing some other people that study emotions. And she said that emotions are the meaning that our minds make from our body's sensations. I thought, wow, that's really a good insight. What causes us to have an emotional response? It's because we take in some information of some kind through our senses, something we see or hear or feel or taste. Uh, any emotional input can cause us to respond. And, and so we get these sensations and they, they evoke a response in our emotions. So our emotions become a combination of what's happening in us and what we think will happen as we process what's happening. So, for example, if, um, if I meet a barking dog, they don't typically worry me. I don't typically get alarmed that that dog's going to come and bite me. I had a dog bite me one time when I was a kid. I wasn't afraid of that dog till he jumped up and bit me. But generally, I don't have a fear of dogs. I've gotten to know dogs. I don't have one right now, but I like dogs. And so I assume they're going to like me. And so I don't respond. And I've learned not to respond with a fear of dogs. Now, some other people might have a fear of dogs. It's what I, that's what, so what I'm saying is when, when I hear a dog barking and see him running my way, I, I certainly I look at his body language to see if I think he's friendly or not. But all of that sight that sound of that dog barking and running does not immediately cause me to be afraid. It's something I realize and then I process that information based upon my sense of dogs. And so the emotion that comes out is different. In fact, I might be delighted to see that dog where somebody else would see that dog and they had run like mad because they're afraid. Well, that's a result of, of what's happening in us, that recognition there's a dog and what we think will happen because there's a dog, that results in an emotion. That's a pretty simple example, but I hope you understand that. That is true on all kinds of things because our emotions come to the surface as a result of the things that we observe or hear or touch or taste. All of those kinds of things can create emotions in us. In the same way, when we see a baby, we have a different emotion because we have the this input, the sensation of, oh, there's a baby. And so we have that sense. Now, some people, they see a baby and they think, uh-oh, I don't want to change that diaper. Okay, I get that. But other people see a baby and they just want to hold that baby immediately because babies are cute. And they often become the center of attention because of that. But you understand, our response to that is constructed out of our observations, what we see, hear, touch, taste, and what we know about a baby. And so an emotion comes from that. Now, this whole idea of processing these inputs, these senses, these five senses that we have, the process of, of, 
of thinking through the the emotion or the observations that we have is the processing of our thoughts and then that results in a choice so i can process my thoughts about a dog and make a choice not to be afraid now here's the thing that's important for us to 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 get a hold of and this may help many of us going forward we need to be recognizing that our thoughts are what we process and they are influenced by people and the other things that we allow into our lives that influence us. So everything that's happened to us and is happening to us, everything that we allow into our lives today has an influence on how we process the things around us and result in our emotions. So your parents, your friends, your family, your pastors, your teachers, your books, your media, everything that you allow to influence you has has a role to play in the emotions that then you feel. And that's really important for us to recognize that. Very important. People think it doesn't matter. People think they can they can do whatever they want. Uh, I guarantee you, if you fill your mind with certain things, it's going to influence you in ways that you're not going to want to have happen in your life. So we need to guard our hearts so that we protect them from being troubled because the things that go on around us that we see, that we hear, that we taste, that we touch, all of those things are going to affect us and help us process either good or bad. And that's one of the things that we can control over when it says, do not let your heart be troubled. We can control those influences. So what do we do? Let me give you three things that I was thinking about that can help us manage our emotions and grow and mature and not be driven by them. First thing is this, realize the influence or the importance of the influences that come into your life. You know, there's a a place in Philippians where it talks about think on these things. And uh, I want to read a little bit bit of that from the message. And it's in Philippians chapter 4, starting with verse 6. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. Summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. Put into practice what you learned from me, what you heard and saw and realized. Do that, and God, who makes everything work together, will work you into his most excellent harmonies. And over and over in the Bible, and I want to read this from the New Revised Standard Version. Over and over in the Bible, it says, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. If God says to us, do not let your heart be troubled, then it's something we can have by the grace and the mercy of God. And if you will put your confidence in him and believe in him, as that verse says, if you will allow grace, the gift of God, that enables the people of God to fulfill the will of God, if you will allow grace to be yours, it's amazing what God can do to bring peace of heart and mind to you. 
And I'm convinced that too many people think that's just the way I am. And God smiles down from heaven and says, yeah, but you don't have to park on Anxiety Avenue. Let's get going. We've got a better place for you to live. And I hope you will seek and find it in Him. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. Hope you found this helpful. We'll be back next week. I look forward to talking to you at that time.